Hello, and welcome to the turbulent world of Middle East soccer, or Mid-East soccer podcast. I'm your host, James Dorsey. Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates have drawn praise for social reforms that have domestically reduced the role of religion in public life, enhanced women's rights, and in the case of the UAE, catered to non-Muslim lifestyles. Yet, Saudi and Emirati efforts to position their countries as the Muslim world's beacons of an autocratic notion of moderate Islam have done little to encourage moderation beyond their borders. Despite a radical cutback in decades-long global Saudi funding for the spread of an ultra-conservative interpretation of Islam, and the Emirates' trumpeting of notions of tolerance. The geographic limits of Saudi and Emirati moderation are evident in the housing projects of France, the Rohingya refugee camp at Bangladesh's Cox's Bazar, and in Pakistan, where Prime Minister Imran Khan appears to be reinforcing religious ultra-conservatism that has long been woven into the fabric of society with Saudi assistance. The obstacles in garnering religious soft power are further evident in the travails of the Saudi-funded King Abdullah bin Abdulaziz International Center for Interreligious and Intercultural Dialogue. After a decade in Vienna, the center has been forced to relocate to Lisbon. The center hopes that the kingdom's lack of freedom of religion and tarnished human rights record will spark less controversy in the Portuguese capital. Supporters of the center blamed anti-Muslim sentiment for the controversy surrounding it. However, while the rise of Islamophobia in recent years, due to indiscriminate and senseless acts of violence, prejudice against migration, and right-wing xenophobic agitation is beyond doubt, equally true is that neither Saudi Arabia nor the UAE can claim total innocence. Until the rise of Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, Saudi-funded ultra-conservatives fed on feelings of marginalization, disenfranchisement, and alienation in housing projects in French cities, populated primarily by Muslim immigrants and their French-born descendants. At the risk of simplifying a bit, one could argue that from the mid-1990s onward, the rise of Islamist violence in France that culminated with the terror wave of 2015-2016 was essentially a Salafi undertaking, said Mark Weitzman, the author of a recent essay on the debate in France about violence and the country's Muslim minority. Mr. Weitzman, who blames the Muslim Brotherhood and its Middle Eastern backers alongside the Saudis for France's problem, appeared to implicitly acknowledge that his assessment did not also hold French discriminatory policy and societal attitudes responsible. The combination of Saudi funding, Islamist agitation, and French policy created a brew in an environment of increasing anti-Muslim, anti-migrant sentiment, and populist xenophobia that allowed the UAE to align its obsessive campaign against political Islam with the domestic and geopolitical aspirations of French President Emmanuel Macron. 
was an election scheduled for April in which the president's strongest challengers are likely to be right-wing xenophobes, Mr. Macron has accused the Brotherhood and Salafists of Islamist separatism and supremacy by allegedly seeking to introduce an Islamic legal code that would supersede French law. The government has in the past year passed legislation that is widely seen as targeting Muslims and has cracked down on various Muslim civil society organizations. An unintentional consequence of targeting innocent French Muslims is the further marginalization of a minority group already on the fringes of society, cautioned Tanzila Jamal, a political science undergraduate. Similarly, militants of the Aragon Rohingya Salvation Army, ARSA, alongside criminal gangs, are gaining ground in Bangladesh's Cox Bazar, home to about a million refugees from Myanmar who have nothing to look forward to. Like their French brethren, little short of practical life-improving solutions will stop Rohingya refugees from finding solace in religious militancy and ultra-conservatism and persuade them that Islamic moderation has anything to offer. To be sure, Saudi Arabia and the UAE have donated millions of dollars for humanitarian aid to the Rohingya. But with a potential civil war looming a year after a military coup in Myanmar, humanitarian aid alone is unlikely to stop the wound in Cox's Bazaar from festering. Yet, Myanmar does not rank among the top recipients of aid in a just-published report on Saudi humanitarian and development aid. Published by the King Faisal Center for Research and Islamic Studies, the report, Why the World Needs Partnership with Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia's Global Humanitarian and Development Aid, intends to fill a gap created by what it sees as a failure of the media and international aid platforms to highlight the kingdom's contribution. Saudi Arabia ranks among the world's top five donors, with 60% of the funds, or $40 billion, allocated to development in the last 46 years, according to the report. In contrast to Myanmar, Pakistan ranks among the top five recipients of Saudi largesse in terms of both humanitarian and development aid. Arguably, the, country's mo the country most impacted by decades of Saudi support for ultra-conservatism, Pakistan appears to be traveling down a road that the Kingdom and the UAE are exiting. Pakistani Prime Minister Khan emphasizes the role of Islam in education and the clamping down on alleged blasphemy, an issue that often sparks, sparks mob violence in the South Asian nation. While Saudi Arabia and the UAE have sought to reduce the role religion plays in national identity and public life. With the debate in Pakistan focused on education and social mores, Saudi Arabia last May said that it would build a grand mosque in the name of King Salman on the campus of the Islamic University of Islamabad. While the mosque's message is likely to differ substantially from what Saudi-funded institutions preached prior to reforms introduced in the kingdom by Prince Mohammed, there is little chance 
that it will persuade Pakistan not to travel down a road that the Kingdom and the UAE are abandoning. After introducing a singular national curriculum that substantially increases religious content and creating a body to monitor the curriculum and watch for blasphemous content on social media, Mr. Khan last week identified corruption and explicit sexual content on social media rather than a lack of quality education, an intellectual and social environment that encourages creative and independent thinking and professional prospects as the main issues facing Muslim youth. Mr. Khan has long made corruption his signature issue, but recently leaked documents suggest that members of his cabinet and their families, as well as some of his financial backers and military officers, have parked millions of dollars in secretly owned offshore companies. Mr. Khan himself was not shown to have offshore holdings. Nonetheless, in an online meeting last week with Islamic scholars, Mr. Khan, focusing on Islam's earliest years, appeared to argue that societal ethics and morals were a prerequisite for the fight against corruption. As a result, Mr. Khan prioritized in his remarks his perceived need to protect youth from the invasion of social media on their faith and religious and ethical values. He insisted that young Muslims had to be spared being inundated with obscenity and pornographic material available on the internet. The online gatherings participants were primarily prominent proponents of an autocratic or right-wing nationalist notion of moderate Islam. They essentially excluded voices advocating jurisprudential and theological reforms that would embrace human rights and fundamental freedoms. Among the participants were UAE-backed clerics Abdullah bin Baya and Hamza Yusuf, Recep Şentürk, who is believed to be close to Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, as well as renowned traditionalist thinker Sayyid Hussein Nasser and his Malaysian student Osman Bakar, and Chandar Muzaffar, a controversial Malaysian scholar, former Islamist politician and activist. The newly established Pakistani monitoring body invited them. Mr. Khan's discourse sounded surreal, given the nature of the problems faced by Muslim-majority countries. The prime ministerial observations and questions during the discussion revealed a narrow world outlook. In fact, such views can be taken as symptomatic of all that has caused the backwardness of Muslim countries, said Pakistani columnist Zahid Hussein. Decrying the gap in social and economic development between Muslim countries and the rest of the world, Mr. Hussein cautioned that obscurantism only accentuates our backwardness. The youth, he said, which now compromises the majority of the Muslim world's population, need education, freedom of expression and thinking that can equip them to compete with the rest of the world. Thank you for joining me today. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. A written version of this podcast is on my blog, The Turbulent World of Middle East Soccer at Middle East Soccer dot blogspot dot com.
Please join me for my next podcast in the coming days. All the best for the new year and take care.